0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com. And of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: We've got to start on this market. What a rally we've seen off the bottom over the last couple of months. Mike Sweller, Goldman Sachs, joins us now. Mike, Friday. What did Friday change for you as you look ahead to the weeks and months ahead through 2020?
2: I think that Friday was just an example of a continuation of the impact of uh, government policy. So a big impact on the fiscal, a big impact of monetary policy that the rally can continue because the level of support from the government has been so significant, creating an enormous amount of cash that is really looking for a reason to get invested. I think that when you look at the employment report and the discussion you've had earlier today about the questions in the number, we're a long ways away from getting American workers back to work in a very meaningful way. So the job situation is going to be one that is going to continue to be an issue for the next six months to a year. And so I wouldn't necessarily call victory with regard to the job picture. I think we have a long, long way to go. And I think what you're seeing right now in markets is the, more the impact of um, uh, significant, significant policy, liquidity, more so than confidence in, in, in reopening.
1: The policy effort has clearly worked. The Federal Reserve's objective was to divorce financial conditions from the real economy. We've done that. I think a lot of people looking at the data, Mike, and trying to work out whether the economic conditions catches up with where financial conditions has taken us. Is that a challenge for the next couple of months or a challenge for the turn of the year?
2: Uh, That is the number one, two, and three question with regard to how you think about financial markets here. And um, at Goldman Sachs, what we did last week, we have a daily forum where we get together all different investors. We brought in our multi-asset people, our fundamental equity investors, as well as fixed income, and had kind of a cage match around this topic. And the conclusion that we came to is that, number one, the financial conditions that have been supported by the Fed and by, uh, by governments through fiscal policy will dominate in the near term. But in the long term, it's going to be, Earnings and jobs that are going to matter, and I, I, I think that it's too early to call victory with regard to where earnings are going to end up. I think a lot of investors are saying that you know we're going to jump back uh, in 2021 to the earnings that we saw in 2019. We have a long, long way to go, and I think that there's a, a lot more repair that has to happen in the economy. There, we, we really don't know how companies are going to mm-hmm. react to a different state of of of, uh, of a global economy when we have a uh, a, a An issue, uh, a medical issue that's going to be so significant and change the way that we do business. So, our view right now is that for the near term, policy wins, stay long, risk assets, but over the longer term, it's going to be all about earnings and jobs.
0: Michael Swell, I want to go to your work with Goldman Sachs and before that with Friedman, FBR as well, with your expertise in mortgage backed securities. A lot of rents aren't being paid. A lot of commercial real estate of every gradation isn't going to work out. There's all the loans and the fancy derivative instruments off the back of that. Are you troubled at all by a pending real estate crisis in the nation because rents are not being paid? Um, I would say that the
2: residential picture is going to be 100% correlated to the job picture. So if we expect to continue to get America back to work and we can drive the true unemployment rate below 10%, we're likely not to have a housing market issue, whether on the price issue or whether on the rent issue. Uh, And and so I think in terms of housing, we, we don't have oversupply like we had oversupply in 2007, and we don't have um, too much leverage in the system. We've kind of fixed the very, very high LTV loan situation, the interest only loan situation. We, we don't have borrowers that are leveraged as they were before. We're really going to be dependent upon jobs. So I think if we continue to see jobs improve, we don't have a housing market issue. I do think in the commercial real estate market, there's a lot of Adjustment that has to occur there 's going to be um, a decent amount of uh, restructuring of loans there 's going to be some defaults obviously on the retail side. but if you look at the commercial real estate market there 's a, a big debate there if we think that we 're going to see a lot of companies move out of uh, uh, move out of major uh, hubs major cities and and, and, and diversify their uh, their exposure, having a negative impact on commercial real estate. The other side of that is in a socially distant world you 're finding that companies are actually looking for more square footage to be able to bring workers yeah. back in a in a, in, a, in a safe way. So we actually think that the commercial real estate market is one that um, has has still has a lot of opportunity. If we see reopening of the economy, like the equity market is telling you, you ought to see stabilization in the commercial real estate market. And if you look in the world that we live in, not in the direct commercial real estate market, but in the commercial real estate securities market, we have not seen a significant recovery in pricing there. If we see the economy get back like the equity market is telling you, we think there's going to be a lot of opportunity in some of the mezzanine securities and commercial Mm mortgage-backed securities to be able to earn equity-like returns.
3: Mike, I'm just wondering, you were saying it's a time to stay risk on, and certainly a lot of people have been risk on. If you look at high yield bonds in the U.S., they've gained 22% since late March, and we've seen $3.5 billion flow into the biggest high yield bond ETF in the past week alone. Don't fight the Fed, but you can front run it. Has the Fed already been front run fully, or are there further opportunities here?
2: I don't think fully. I still think there's going to be a lot of demand. Uh, for U.S. credit-related assets. Keep in mind, it's not just front-running the Fed, but we're in a global interest rate environment where there are no interest rates. We're basically zero around the globe. And the U.S. credit market still is a market that offers investors yield. Demand for yield is very, very significant. And I think people will continue to view not only the U.S. Treasury market, but also the U.S. corporate credit market as, in general, a safe haven. So I do think there's more room to run. However, more broadly around the question around risk assets and where we go from here, in the short term, we do think that policy zero rates are going to drive risk assets higher from here, but that's not going to last forever. In the end, it's going to be about earnings. And so In our discussion last week, our cage match around where we go from here and have risk assets gone too far, we definitely came to the conclusion that this is going to be a winners and losers market, both on the equity side and the credit side. And it's time to think a little bit about um, moving away from just kind of being long beta and really focusing on the types of companies that will be uh, the survivors and will gain market share. And so we do think active management will be a very important part of uh, future returns versus just the beta.
1: Hey, Mike, we just want to know who wins a cage fight at Goldman Sachs. How does that work out over the weekend when that plays out? Well,
2: I'm six foot five, 220 pounds, so I'm the biggest person, <laughs> so I always I, I I was win. Um, uh, who wins a cage well match? The, the, the answer is short-term, risk on, long-term. Uh, long-term, it's going to really rely upon earnings, and that the data that we have so far is irrelevant to the longer-term macro picture. Stay tuned, follow what's going on in China, follow what's going on in South Korea in terms of reopening and what's going on with the consumer, what's going on with corporate earnings uh, in those countries, because those will be leading indicators for what goes on here.
1: Mike Swell, fantastic work, as always. Always appreciate your time, sir. Mike Swell there of Goldman Sachs.
0: Joining us now, Amrita Sen of Energy Aspects. Amrita Sen is outstanding at the dynamics of supply and demand. Amrita, I want to dovetail your wonderful narrow work with those that take a more geopolitical strategic work, because it folds in. If OPEC Plus members, and let's go with OPEC, if they cheat, how does that affect your world of the minutia of supply and demand?
4: Hi, morning, Tom. Um, I think in terms of the question you asked about compliance, Um, If they cheat, uh, which, by the way, we are assuming in our balances, we just cannot see how Iraq, Nigeria, Kazakhstan, given their fiscal, uh, broader fiscal issues, uh, they just are so cash strapped, will comply. It just means that the rebalancing takes longer. It is simply that. Uh, Supplies are now falling faster than demand. We've been saying this right from the start, that the stock draws will start from early June, and they have begun. Um, But the more these guys cheat, it just means that The overall supply number, the reduction from OPEC plus, will be less than what the headline number suggests.
3: Um, Rita. I'm struggling to understand the supply-demand dynamic right now. A lot of people saying that the promised cuts of OPEC Plus and the potential enforcement of them, which has been a challenge uh, for years, that that has been the main driver of some of the recent price gains. And other people raise the concern that the shale patch is slowly starting to bring rigs back on. How much is this the story and how much is demand still the main driver here?
4: How quickly the global economy can get back up to speed? I think you're exactly right. Um, I think the global demand, at least in our view, is still very much the key driver. We did fall to record low levels in terms of demand. Now we are recovering. Um, And that just means that you do need higher supplies. Now, I still stand by the problem we have in the market in the, in oil, that is, the data is opaque, the data is very lagged. We still don't know just how much we fell by. So if we don't know how much we fell by, but the markets assumed we would hit tank tops, I remember talking to you guys about that. But we never did, because A, maybe demand didn't fall by as much as expected, even though it was very, very weak. And because of negative prices, supplies fell tremendously. And that's what got us to overshoot to the downside. In some respects, We have overshot to the upside right now, but we do need that some of that supply back because now refineries are bringing back production and demand is rising. I still think we've gone a bit too far because the demand is fragile. Supplies from the US are going to start to come back. So, you know, it's not like a slam dunk that, of course, prices should be rising from here.
1: Amrita, do you find the supply in the United States is more elastic when prices roll over aggressively than when they rally?
4: Yes, um, I think that the rate of change is absolutely the critical thing. But, you know, the main thing I will say for right now, especially because you ask about the U.S. and uh, in relation to gasoline demand, it's unemployment on, on our all our economic models. That's the biggest driver, uh, even more so than prices.
1: Just want to fit in a final question as well, Amrita. Um, New York City reopening. I think we're all trying to get our hands around how quickly demand recovers. This is a slow, slow process for New York City, but going global to the United States beyond China, where we have at least a longer data set. What's the recovery and demand look like at the moment, Amrita, for these economies reopening?
4: I mean, if, if you believe that say demand fell by about 20-25 million barrels per day at the bottom, which was in, in April, we have easily recovered about... 10 to 12 million barrels per day in May alone. And right now, we believe global oil demand is about 90 million barrels per day, give or take. Uh, Again, China, parts of China are actually back above last year's levels because the government has, um, it's basically driving a big stimulus package. Europe isn't, US isn't. It's going to take a long time, particularly in the aviation sector. But yes, economies are opening up around the world because lockdown simply isn't sustainable uh, for growth in the medium term.
1: I'm really Sen of Energy Aspects. I'm really fantastic to catch up with you to get your thoughts as always.
0: We're going to do a lot of this through this week of Bloomberg Surveillance and market analysis. And there's no one better to coalesce all of these emotions and tensions than Daniel Morris. He's with BNP Paribas uh, with Market Strategy as well. Daniel, we have come so far so fast in this equity market. How do you restructure? How do you reframe on the Monday morning in June?
5: Well, I think it depends on the attitude that you had before we got all the news. I and mean, we've been in the camp, uh, I think like a lot of people, that it had been uh, too much too soon. And if we got more and sooner than we had before, you've either capitulated uh, or you've just become that much more nervous. And unfortunately, we're probably just that much more nervous. I mean, certainly the data was good, it's helpful. But when you try to think about how things are going to be three and six months from now, And in particular, when you look at earnings forecasts for the end of the year, there still seems to be a fairly significant disconnect that, if anything, has gotten bigger.
0: Okay, I totally take that point. And the chart of the earnings disconnect is known by anybody listening and watching this program. Great. Then what it comes down to is central bank support. Did that go away over the weekend? Well, I guess it comes down to how, what's the mechanism for that
5: central bank support. I mean, if we think about low interest rates, right, we've had that for, for a very long time. Uh, the increase in money supply, you know, certainly there's no lack of liquidity, but I don't think it's necessarily that that's driving up the market. So on the margin, I guess it comes back to if you do have any kind of setback, if there's any disappointments when we get into the fall, uh, an increase in infections and concerns about a re-imposition of the lockdowns, you know, we will come back inevitably either to the question, you know, how much more can central banks do when they've already done so much, and or if it's the need for or further fiscal stimulus, at some point, we've got to worry about the debt that's being issued. So I think if there is one good thing that has come out about this, and I think you alluded to it a bit sooner, you know, we may not now get as much stimulus in the next rounds from the U.S. as you would have thought before, given this data. And, you know, I really actually think that is a good thing because it is because the data is better, so you don't need it. And then also, uh, again, we are going to have to worry about the debt levels so at some point, And at least on the margin, that's not quite as big of a problem as you might have feared.
3: Dan, a lot of people say that the rally in stocks hasn't been entirely driven by Fed stimulus, but just the fact that Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple have all done well in this environment with a push to the digital. And if you look at the combined uh, capitalization of the top five holdings in the S&P, it has doubled since 2013, how much can we see this rotation into the other sectors that are less loved, given the fact that we're not clear on how much of a fundamental recovery we have in the economy?
5: Yeah, I think it's exactly the right way to be thinking about it. And I would actually divide up the market in probably three different bins. So one, you certainly have technology, which we all understand is gonna be a long-term winner from the pandemic, but at the same time, we also appreciate that valuations had gotten very high just by one measure of price to book for the sector is eight times, uh, which is all time high for the sector. So even if, you know, we love those growth prospects, you're paying a lot for that right now. So without question of vulnerability, at least in the near term for technology, I think the other part where we've seen. Those parts of the market that had massively underperformed until recently—you think anything around tourism uh, and leisure and so on—you know a pretty significant opportunity there for those sectors to rebound now. Maybe not sustainably, because a lot of this will come down ultimately to how optimistic we are uh, about getting a vi- excuse me a vaccine and when. But you know, from the valuation point of view, that's clearly an opportunity. And then I think the other risk we need to keep in mind are exactly those defensive sectors. That have done well, but have done well because we've been living under lockdowns, because we haven't had a vaccine. And as that starts to ease, these sectors, which have also become quite expensive, aren't going to see that long term earning support the way you see in technology. So you think uh, around, say, um, the markets excuse me, hypermarkets, you think about you know, cleaning supplies uh, and any other defensive sectors. I think that's probably yeah. the other key vulnerability that you need to keep in mind when you're looking at your portfolio.
3: Dan, is the market right now pricing in a second wave? I think
5: the question is twofold. So one, will there be a second wave? And I think most people are pretty sure that there will be. I mean, it certainly seems likely, but it's trying to anticipate then what the response is going to be. And I think there's at least there, there's some ground for optimism that even if there is a second wave, the economic impact won't necessarily be so great. I think there's two reasons for that. One, you know, as opposed to the first wave, we know this one is coming, or at least we can anticipate it. So we'll be more prepared. You know, hopefully hospitals will be ready will have you know better capability around tracking and tracing so hopefully can have a more focused targeted response whatever increase we do see, and we won't need to have nationwide lockdowns where we've had so far. So, again, the economic impact will be uh, hopefully much less than we saw in the first round. And I think the second thing that certainly changed over the last couple of weeks is to some degree, you could argue the media attention has shifted a bit. It's not every day on the front page, you know, 24-7 on the TV about the pandemic. And you think about the psychological impact of that, you know, people's desire to consume, to go out. Uh, If by the time we get to the autumn, if the media attention has faded somewhat, I think that will be at least beneficial in terms of psychology, even though it's without question still going to be a very serious health issue. People may may not feel quite so concerned and stressed about the environment and therefore you will have on the margin a greater propensity to consume in a way that we haven't seen over the last several months.
1: Hey, Dan, we've got to leave it there. Dan, always great to catch up with you, mate. Dan Morris there of been prepared by this market.
0: One of the great things that is true is we take it for granted. And what we take for granted is very simply the getting around of New York. It can be 70,000 plus people. It can be by any means of conveyance, but it looks a lot easier than it actually is. Patrick Foy is with us on this day of reopening for New York City. We welcome him across this nation and to our worldwide audience. He has a small job as chief executive officer of the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority. Patrick, congratulations on getting to this point in this pandemic. It has been an extraordinary effort. Give us an update on the last two months. What surprised you about what needed to be done in this city for the MTA?
6: Well, first, thanks for having me. Uh, It's not a surprise, but I am uh, awestruck uh, and overwhelmed by the job that the uh, MTA operating folks did, subways, buses, Metro North, Long Island Railroad, bridges and tunnels. Uh, They were literally heroes, uh, moving heroes. Uh, The pandemic has obviously had the epicenter has been New York City and uh, New York, New Jersey uh, region. Uh, And the losses, uh, whether uh, fatalities, uh, illnesses, economic damage, have been uh, extensive. But the MTA workforce has done a a tremendous job. The second thing that strikes me, obviously, is the precipitous decline in ridership, which uh, paradoxically, in this context, is a good thing. It was New Yorkers responding to Governor Cuomo's directive and suggestions Uh, Directive by uh, executive order with the force of state law, but also his suggestions that the way to minimize uh, the number of cases and fatalities uh, in New York, uh, New York City and New York State was for people to stay home and not ride public transit, uh, except for first responders and essential employees. And New Yorkers answered that call. Happily, today, we're restoring full service uh, on the subway. Service is good this morning. Uh, Last week, we did a physical survey of about uh, nearly 50,000 customers, and mask compliance, which is now a part of state law, was 92%. The most important thing that our customers – sorry, the most important thing our customers can do is to wear masks to protect themselves uh, and their co-commuters and our our employees – And that 92% is an impressively high number and one we want to drive higher.
0: How are you going to police usage of masks? I'm on a train, I'm on a bus, and there's that one idiot, those two idiots without a mask. How do you police that? So here's an answer to that question. First, we're starting from a good place, which is 92%
6: compliance. Uh, I I spent 40 minutes in Grand Central Terminal this morning. uh, And frankly, the customer compliance looked higher than that. Uh, What the MTA is doing this morning uh, in subway stations throughout the entire system is distributing this week 2 million masks. We got a million masks donated by the state and the city each. Uh, We've got MTA employees and volunteers uh, from both the state and the city and the MTA helping distribute those masks. So the most important action that can be taken by our customers is wearing masks. 92% is a pretty good start. We're going to monitor it and report it going forward. On top of that, we are disinfecting every subway car, every bus, every Metro North and Long Island Railroad commuter rail uh, at least once a day. And in the case of subways and buses and commuter rails, multiple times a day, uh, we're disinfecting our stations, all of them, at least twice a day. We announced a couple of weeks ago the great news that ultraviolet sea light, according to research by Dr. David Brenner at Columbia University, kills the COVID-19 uh, virus, And we're piloting that right this week, last week, this week, and uh, next week on subways and buses. We'll roll it out to Metro North and mm-hmm. Long Island Railroad. Beyond that, we're also looking at antimicrobials, which promise to have the ability to eradicate the COVID-19 right. virus, but also to do <clears> that <throat> well, for months after application.
0: Mr. Foy, let me bring in my colleague, Lisa Abramowitz. Lisa?
3: Well, no, Chair, you know, one thing that I'm struggling to understand is how quickly ridership has to get back up to near where it was in the past in order for the MTA to remain solvent without federal government help or additional borrowing, perhaps, through the Fed's new facility.
6: So, Elisa, great question. Obviously, in the CARES Act, the MTA received over $3.8 billion. The HEROES Act, which was passed by Speaker Pelosi, and both of those we owe uh, great thanks, and I have to acknowledge the work that Senator Schumer and the New York Congressional Delegation did on a bipartisan basis. Like every transit agency in the country and around the world, ridership has declined precipitously. That's the flip side, obviously, of New Yorkers responding to Governor Cuomo's directive and and request that people stay home. Today is a, an important day, <clears throat> phase one of the recovery uh, of New York. Uh, we expect, and anecdotally, first of all, we're providing really solid, reliable subway and bus service uh, this morning. There have been no delays reported. Uh, We see mass compliance at a very high level, and we believe that ridership is uh, is headed higher. Obviously, we are in the uh, phase one, significantly below the ridership in pre-pandemic days. We and every other transit agency are going to require federal aid to get us through 2020 about half of our revenue is based on fares and tolls. The other half is on a package of dedicated taxes and subsidies, which are economically sensitive or transaction uh, uh, based. The uh, Fed's uh, action last week on the municipal liquidity facility uh, is important. Uh, Governor Cuomo has dedicated, uh, the M- uh, named rather the MTA as one of the revenue bond issuers in the state of New York that is eligible for an NFL uh, uh, applications.
3: Thank you so much, Patrick Foy, the chair and CEO of the MTA. We really appreciate your being with us, and we hope that you come back in order to provide us with an update as to how the reopening does go.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.